Section 27 of The Waning of the Middle Ages, A Study of the Forms of Life, Thought, and Art in France and the Netherlands in the 14th and 15th centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Waning of the Middle Ages by Johann Huitzinger, translated by Frederick Jan Hopman. Verbal and Plastic Expression Compared to Part 1 The superiority of painting to literature in point of expressiveness is not, however, absolute and complete. There are regions where it does not exist, and these we must now consider. The whole domain of the comic is much more open to literature than to plastic art. Unless it stoops to caricature, art can only express the comic in a slight degree. In art, the comic tends at once to become serious again. We do not laugh on looking at Bruegel, although we admire in him the same force of droll fancy which makes us laugh in reading Rabelais. Only where the comic forms but a slight accessory can pictorial expression rival the written word. We can observe it in what is called genre painting, which may be considered the most attenuated form of the comic. The disproportionate refinement of details which we noticed above as being characteristic of the paintings of the epoch tends insensibly to change into the pleasure of relating petty curious facts, whereas in the room of Arnolfini the minutiae do not injure the solemn intimacy of the picture in the least. They have become mere curiosities in the master of Flemal. His Joseph on the altar of Merode is occupied with making mousetraps. With him, all the details are genre, with an almost imperceptible flavor of the comic about them. Between his manner of painting an opened window shutter, a sideboard, a chimney, and that of Van Eyck, there is all the difference between purely pictorial vision and genre painting. Now here comes to light a clear advantage of speech over pictorial representation. As soon as something more than mere vision has to be expressed, Literature, thanks to its faculty of expressing moods explicitly, takes the lead. Let us remember again Deschamps' ballads, celebrating the beauty of the castles, which we compared with and found inferior to the perfect miniatures of the brothers of Limbourg. These poems of Deschamps lack power and splendor. He has not succeeded in reproducing the vision of these glorious halls. But now compare the ballad in which he paints himself lying ill in his poor little castle of Fiedme, kept awake by the cries of barn owls, starlings, crows, and sparrows nesting in his tower. C'est une étrange mélodie qui semble pas grand déduit à gens qui sont en maladie. Premier les corbes vont savoir pour certains si tôt qu'il est jour. De forts criés font leur poire, le gros. Le grêle sans séjour. Mieux vaudrait le son d'un tabour que tel cri de divers oiseaux. Puis vient la proie, vache, veau, criant, meillant, et tout ce nuit, quand on a le cerveau trop vu, joint du moustier la sonnerie, qui tout l'entendement détruit, à gens qui sont en maladie. At night, the owls come with their sinister screeching, evoking thoughts of death. Ces froids hôtels et mal réduits à gens qui sont en maladie. Translations. It is a strange melody which is not felt as a great amusement by people who are ill, 
First the ravens let us know for certain, as soon as it is day. They cry aloud with all their might, in deep and shrill tones, without interruption. Even the sound of a drum would be better than those cries of various birds. Next come the cattle going to pasture, cows, calves, bellowing, lowing, and all this is noxious when one has an empty brain, with the bells of the church chiming in and destroying altogether the understanding of people who are ill. It is a cold hostelry and ill refuge for people who are ill. This trick of the mere enumeration of a multitude of details loses its wearisome character as soon as the faintest trace of humour is mixed up with it. In the middle of a very prolix allegorical poem, L'Epinette Amoureuse, Froissart diverts us by the enumeration of some sixty games at which he used to play at Valenciennes as a boy. The descriptions of burgher customs or of the female toilet, long though they be, do not fatigue us because they contain a satirical element which was lacking in the poetical descriptions of the beauty of spring. From the genre to the burlesque is but a step, but here again painting may rival literature in expressive power. Before 1400 art had already attained some mastery of this element of burlesque vision which was to reach its full growth in Peter Bruegel in the 16th century. We find it in the figure of Joseph in the flight into Egypt by Broderlam at Dijon, and again in the three soldiers asleep in the picture of the three Marys at the sepulchre, at one time attributed to Hubert van Eyck. Of the artists of the epoch, none took more pleasure in effects of bizarre jocularity than Paul of Limburg. A spectator of the purification of the Virgin wears a kind of bent wizard's cap a yard long and immoderately wide sleeves. The font displays three monstrous masks shooting out their tongues. In the framework of the visitation we see a soldier in a tower fighting with a snail and a man wheeling away on a barrow a pig playing the bagpipes. The literature of the epoch is bizarre in nearly every page and very fond of burlesque. A vision worthy of Bruegel is called up by Deschamps in the ballad of the watchman on the tower of Sluy. He sees the troops for the expedition against England collecting on the beach. They appear to him like an army of rats and mice. Avant, avant, tirez-vous ça. Je vois merveille, ce me semble. Et quoi, guette, que vois-tu là? Je vois dix mille rats ensemble et maintes souris qui s'assemblent dessus la rive de la mer. Translation. Forward, forward, come here. I see a marvellous thing, it seems to me. And what, watchman, do you see there? I see ten thousand rats together and a multitude of mice collecting on the seashore. On another occasion, sitting at a table absent-minded and gloomy, Deschamps suddenly began to notice the way in which the courtiers were eating, some chewing like pigs, some gnawing like mice, or using their teeth like a saw. Others, whose beards moved up and down, or who made such horrible faces that they looked like devils. As soon as literature sets to work to depict the life of the masses, it shows this realism full of vitality and good humour, which was to develop abundantly, but not till later, in painting. The peasant receiving in his hovel the Duke of Burgundy, who has lost his way, reminds us by the portrait which Chastelin draws of him of Bruegel's types. The pastoral deviates from its central theme, which is sentimental and romantic, to find in the description of shepherds eating, dancing, and courting matter for a naive naturalism with a spice of burlesque. Whenever the eye suffices for communicating the sense of the comic, however airy it may be, 
art is able to express it as well as or better than literature. Apart from this, pictorial art can never render the comic. Line and color are impotent wherever the comic effect lies in a point of wit. Literature is incontestably sovereign both in the low comedy genre of the farce and the fabliau, and in the higher domain of irony. It is especially in erotic poetry that irony developed. By adding its acrid flavor, it refined the erotic genre. It purified it, at the same time by introducing into it an element of a serious nature. Outside the pale of love poetry, irony was still heavy and clumsy. It is worth remarking that a French writer of the 14th or 15th century, speaking ironically, often takes care to inform his reader of the fact. Deschamps praises his age. All is well. Peace and justice reign everywhere. L'homme demande chaque jour qu'il me semble du temps qu'il voit. Et je réponds, c'est tout honneur, loyauté, vérité et foi, largesse, prouesse et arroi, charité et bien qui s'avance pour le commun. Mais par ma loi, je ne dis pas quand que je pense. Translation. People ask me every day what I think of the present times, and I answer, it is all honor, loyalty, truth and faith, liberality, heroism and order, charity and advancement of the common will. But by my faith I do not say what I think. Another ballad of the same tenor has the refrain, Tous ces points à rebours retiens. A third ends with the words, Prince, s'il est partout, généralement, comme je sais, toute vertu abonde. Mais tel mon roi qui dit roi, il se ment. Translations Take all these points just the other way about. Prince, if it is generally everywhere, as I know, every virtue abounds, but many a man hearing me will say, he lies. A wit of the end of the fifteenth century entitles an epigram, Sous une méchante peinture faite de mauvaise couleur et du plus méchant peintre du monde par manière d'ironie par maître Yehan Robertet. Translation under a bad picture done in bad colors and by the most paltry painter of the world in an ironical manner by Master Johann Robertet. When dealing with love, on the other hand, irony had already often attained a high degree of refinement. In this region it blended with the gentle despondency and the languishing tenderness which renewed the erotic poetry of the 15th century. For the first time we hear the poet voice his melancholy with a smile about his own misfortune such as Villon giving himself the air of l'amant remis et renié, the shelved and rejected lover, or Charles of Orléans singing his little songs of disillusion. Nevertheless, the figure Je ris en pleurs, I laugh in tears, is not Villon's invention. Long before him, the scripture word Risus dolore miscebitur et extrema gaudi luctus occupat had given a text for poetical application. Even in laughter the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. Otte de Granson, for example, had said, Vieillir ou lit et jeûner à la table, rire pleurant et en plaignant chanter, lying abed awake and fasting at the board, laughing in tears and lamenting in song. And again, Je prends congé de ce très douce enfant, les yeux mouillés et la bouche riant. 
I took leave of this most sweet child with tearful eyes and a laughing mouth. Alain Chartier made use of the same motif in various ways. Je n'ai bouche qui puisse rire, que les yeux ne la démentissent, car le cœur l'en voudrait dédire par les larmes qui des yeux issuent. My mouth cannot laugh without my eyes belying it, for the heart would deny it by the tears issuing from the eyes. He says of a disconsolate lover, De faire chier s'efforcer et mener d'une joie feinte, et à chanter son cœur forcé non pas pour plaisir mais pour crainte, car toujours un relais de plainte s'enlaçait au ton de sa voix et revenait à son atteinte comme l'oiselle au chant du bois. He constrained himself to be cheerful and showed a faint joy and forced his heart to sing not for pleasure but for fear, for ever a remainder of complaint entwined itself with the tone of his voice and reverted to its purpose, like the ousel singing in the wood. Very near akin to the motif of laughter and tears is that of the poet who at the end of his poem denies his own sorrow, as, for example, Alain Chartier. C'est livrer vos dictées et faire écrire pour passer temps sans courage vilain. Un simple clerc que l'on appelle Alain, qui parle ainsi d'amour pour lui dire. This booklet meant to dictate and to describe, to pass the time, without vulgar mood, a simple clerk called Alain, who speaks thus of love by hearsay. Otto de Granson had already pretended to speak of secret love only par devinaille, by guessing. King René treated this motif in a fantastic manner at the end of his career d'amour et prix. His valet, with a candle in his hand, tries to find out if the king has already lost his heart, but finds no hole in his side. Si me dit tout en soubriant que je dormis seulement, et que n'avais nullement pour ce mal garde de mourir. So he told me, smiling, that I should lie down and sleep, and that I should not at all be afraid to die of this evil. By losing the impeccable gravity characteristic of them in preceding epochs, the ancient conventional forms of erotic poetry became penetrated by a new meaning. Charles d'Orléans makes use of personifications and of allegories like all his predecessors, but by some slight surplus of stress, he adds an almost imperceptible flavor of raillery, and this gives them an affecting note which is lacking in the graceful figures of the Romain de la Rose. He sees his own heart as a double of himself. Je suis celui au cœur vêtu de noir. I am the white whose heart is draped in black. Occasionally, in his extravagant personifications, the comical element has the upper hand. Un jour, à mon cœur divisé qui en secret à moi parlait, et en parlant lui demandait ce point d'Espagne qui fait avoir d'aucun bien quand amour servait. Il me dit que très volontiers la vérité m'en conterait mais que visiter ses papiers quand ce me dit il prit sa voix et d'avec moi se parta après entrer je levai en un comptoir qu'il avait là de ça et de là qu'errait en cherchant plusieurs vieux cahiers car le vrai monstré me voulait mais que visiter ses papiers one day i was talking with my heart which secretly spoke to me and in talking i asked it if i had saved no goods when serving love it said that quite willingly it would tell me the truth about it as soon as it had consulted its papers having told me this it went away and from me departed 
Next, I saw it enter in an office it had, where it rummaged here and there, in looking for several old writing books, for it would show me the truth, as soon as it had consulted its papers. Not always, however. In the following lines, the comic is not dominant. Ne heurtez plus à lui de ma pensée, soins et soucis, sans tant vous travailler, car elle dort et ne veut s'éveiller, toute la nuit en peine à dépenser. En danger, elle, seule n'est bien pensée, cessez, cessez, laissez-la s'emmailler. Ne heurtez plus à lui de ma pensée, soins et soucis, sans tant vous travailler. Do not knock at the door of my mind any more anxiety and care. Do not give yourself so much trouble, for it sleeps and does not want to wake. It has passed all the night in solicitude. It will be in danger if not well nursed. Stop, stop, let it sleep. Do not knock at the door of my mind any more anxiety and care. Do not give yourselves so much trouble. For the spirit of the epoch, nothing heightens so much the acrid flavor of sad and sensitive love as the addition of an element of profanation. Religious travesty has created something better than the obscenities of the sans nouvelle nouvelle. It furnished the form for the tenderest love poem which that age produced. L'amant rendu cordelier à l'observance d'amour. Already the poetical club of Charles d'Orléans had imagined a literary brotherhood whose members, in analogy to the reformed Franciscans, called themselves amoureux de l'observance. The author of L'amant rendu cordelier developed this motif. Who is this author? Is it really Marshal d'Auvergne? It's hard to believe it. So much does this poem rise above the level of his work. The poor disillusioned lover comes to renounce the world in the strange convent, where only the martyrs of love are received. He tells the prior the touching story of his despised love. The latter exhorts him to forget it. Under a medieval guise, we seem to perceive already the genre of Watteau. Only the moonlight is wanting to remind us of Pierrot. Was she not in the habit, asks the prior, of giving you a sweet look or saying, God save you, in passing? I had not got so far in her good graces, replies the lover, but at night I stood about the door of her house and looked up at the eaves. Et puis, quand je hallais des verrières de la maison qui cliquetaient, lors me semblait que mes prières exaucées d'elle s'y étaient. Were you quite sure that she'd noticed you? asks the prior. Si mes dieux, j'étais tant ravi que je ne savais mon sens ne être, car sans parler m'était advie que le vent vantait sa fenêtre, et que m'avait bien pu connaître en disant bas d'un bonne nuit. Et dieu sait que j'étais grand maître après cela toute la nuit. Then he slept in glory. Tellement était restauré que sans tourner ni travailler, je faisais un somme doré, sans point la nuit me réveiller, et puis, avant que m'habiller pour en rendre à l'amour louange, baisais trois fois mon oreiller en riant à part moi aux anges. Translation. And then, when I heard the window of the house which clattered, then it seemed to me that my prayers had been heard by her. So help me God, I was so ravished that I was scarcely conscious, for without being told it seemed to me that the wind moved her window, and she could well have recognized me, perhaps saying softly, Good night, then. And God knows I felt like a prince after this all night. I felt so refreshed that without turning about or tossing I enjoyed golden slumber, without waking up all night, and then before dressing to praise love for it, 
I kissed my pillow thrice, while laughing silently at the angels. When he is solemnly received into the order, the lady who had despised him faints, and a little gold heart, enamelled with tears which he had given her, falls from her dress. Les autres, pour leur mal couvrir à force leur cœur retenait, passant temps à clore et rouvrir les heures quand leurs mains tenaient, dont souvent les feuillets tournaient en signe de dévotion. Mais les deuils et pleurs qu'à Manet montraient bien leur affection. The others, to hide their affliction, controlled their hearts by force, passing the time in closing and opening again the breviaries they held in their hands, of which they often turned the leaves as a sign of devotion, but their sorrow and tears clearly showed their emotion. The prior enumerates his new duties to him, warning him never to listen to the nightingale song, never to sleep under eglantine and mayflower, and, above all, never to look a woman in the eyes. The exhortation ends in a long string of eight-line stanzas, being variations to the theme Sweet Eyes. Douze yeux qui toujours vont et viennent, douze yeux échauffant le plissant de ceux qui amoureux deviennent, douze yeux à clair et perlissant qui disent c'est fait quand tu voudras à ceux qui sentent bien puissant. Sweet eyes that always come and go, sweet eyes heating the fur coat of those who fall in love. Sweet eyes of pearly clearness that say, I am ready when you please, to those whom they feel to be powerful. Towards the middle of the 15th century, all the conventional genres of erotic poetry are of a languishing tenor and bear the stamp of resigned melancholy. Even cynical contempt of woman grows refined. In the Quinze Joies de Mariage, the mischievous and gross purpose is tempered by wistful sentimentality, by its sober realism, by the elegance of its form and the subtlety of its psychology. This work is a precursor of the novel of manners of modern times. End of section 27, read by Sandra near Montreal, 2021.